Five years ago this week, the final Australian Holden Commodore rolled off the line at the Elizabeth plant in South Australia. That's our topic for today. It was, wasn't just the last Australian-made Holden, it was the last Australian-made car. Ford's Falcon rolled off the line a year earlier. So what has changed? Why did it happen? And and how did it completely change the automotive landscape forever? Welcome. I'm Cars Guide Senior Journalist Richard Berry. Our usual host, James Cleary, is away. It's, it's hard to explain. He, he's part of this boxing troupe which travels around Australia. Basically, he's, nobody's managed to knock him out. Fingers crossed. Hope everything goes well, JC. He'll be back next week. But joining me on the podcast panel is our EV guru, Tom White. Hello. And the most feared man in automotive journalism, Stephen J. Otley. Ahoy, ahoy. I don't know if your middle name is Jay. I just put it in there. It sounds cool. Also, <laughs> also this week, we're going to be covering off the news, things that have happened this week. Uh, there's an electric Ford Ranger coming, possibly. and But we also have some more firm dates on when the actual Ineos Grenadier will be landing here too. And, of course, we'll be covering our cars in the garage. All right, let's have a think. October 20, 2017, a red, it was called, it was red hot, SSV red line rolled down the production line for the very final time. Um, they put a piece of cardboard on the front. Uh, it said final car. Um, and a lot of people wondered what the heck happened. Now, Byron Matthew Darkus, I'm, I'm a big fan of Byron. He's a, one of a valued Cars Guy contributor. He's written what I reckon is probably one of the best dissections of, of what actually happened on that day and the, and the years leading up to it. He talks about how, I mean, it wasn't just obvious that people were moving into SUVs and, and ditching large sedans, but he talked about how the entire automotive landscape was changing and and Holden and, and Ford really, really didn't realise that this was happening so quickly. Um, if you do get a chance, have a read of it. He talks about how electric vehicles were, were waiting in the wings as well. Also, Chinese cars were, were about to completely swamp our market and, and it's happening as we speak. Uh, so, yeah, have, have a read. Stephen, you are, look, you, you cover motorsport. Uh, Commodore is so essential to V8 supercars and supercars in, in the recent series. So has it in the Falcon. Mm. I, I like the fact that Byron hasn't written a sob story like crying into your beer, thinking, you know, you know, where did it all go wrong? In fact, he explains that it went wrong a lot earlier. It's just that Holden and Ford didn't realise it. Yeah, hundred percent. I think I think there was a. Uh, a sense of you know too big to fail mm. you know how could how could Australians fall out of love with the Commodore you know they you know I've written stories about this too like that that VE Commodore yeah like I say Byron has done a fantastic breakdown on on the circumstances around it because I think it, it is an oversimplification to say oh people just didn't like large cars they you know they wanted smaller more efficient cars is sort of this false narrative that's that's generated around them We've evolved. We've our tastes have changed. The, the the type of cars we buy has changed. SUVs, they they've become the modern family car, as have Utes. But yeah, Holden, I think for a very long time, they, you know, they invested, you know, what was a billion dollars or something to create that VE Commodore. You know, there yeah. were grand plans for this this platform to to be 
disseminated across the you know General Motors world, but uh, a combination of factors. I mean, I, I still remember around that same time the when VF launched and they launched it in the US as the Chevrolet SS. The dollar was at parity, above parity with the US, which just I mean just destroyed the benefit from from General Motors' point of view. You've just lost all your the, the financial advantage. So it was a it was you know a perfect storm of of problems. But certainly some of them could have been foreseen, you know, some of them, you know, they could have taken some action, but would, would it have saved the Australian car industry? I, I don't think it would have. There's, 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 you know, rare scenarios in which somehow that you can make that survive and they're probably not palatable to uh, the consumer audience. Yeah, look, Byron points out that um, Holden was so at a loss as what to do. They thought that what we needed was another large sedan. So they rebadged an Opal insignia and brought it to Australia as the Commodore when it was kind of like, no, 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 no. There's a reason yeah. why people aren't buying it, right? Yeah. And you're, so, and he talks about how Ford were almost went down that route too. Ford almost brought in Lincolns and things like that to try and think, oh my God, we need, we need a replacement for the Falcon. Uh, but then they realized, and before Holden did it apparently, um, that it was, it was the fact that people didn't want large sedans anymore. Um, but no, uh, Holden persisted. Tom, um, now, this has been coming a long time, and as our EV specialist at Cars Guide, um, I mean, can we? There's a whole lot of nostalgia around, you know, Falcons and and you know Commodores and that type of thing. Will we ever feel that way about electric vehicles? Like, is that is there going to be a you know a final Ionic Five rolling down the production line in fifty years' time? Are we ever going to feel this way about electric vehicles? And and did electric vehicles kill the you know, the big sedan star. I'm not sure that it's going to be electric vehicles that are killing the big sedan. I think, as is said in the article, you know, the customer sentiment changed away from big sedans long before that they were ultimately axed from our shores. You know, people moved to SUVs. I think one of the most interesting things in the article is talking about SUVs Mm. and uh, utes and how, like, sort of, the customer base, you know, your everyday city driver has moved out of a Falcon or a Commodore into an SUV and the people who want it for enthusiast purposes have moved into a ute, which is pretty interesting. It seems to be that really even split. But I, I still find it interesting that some days you you talk to people and they're, they're convinced they want an SUV and then you ask them why they want an SUV over a hatchback or sedan and they can't actually articulate why. Hmm. I think there's a few really good reasons why you would buy an SUV, like it's easier to put a child seat in. The yep. boot is like has easier access because it's a big hatch. And, uh, you know, if you're an older person, it's easier to slide in and out of the seat because it's at your hip level, the, the, this sort of stuff. But a lot of people don't need, they don't even consider it. They just want an SUV because so. it's hip. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a misnomer. I actually, I remember years ago, I, I actually did a comparison test between SUVs and their wagon equivalents. And the wagons on average had more luggage capacity and and larger back seats the suv the reality is you can we can sit here and wax lyrical about uh specs and and data and all that sort of stuff but cars ultimately are an emotional purchase and people are buying vehicles like you say they buy an suv they don't really know why they want it they don't really know what you know we we, we have not had an increase in the amount of tradesmen sent and tradespeople like to match the amount of utes we sell right 
We just haven't. People, there are so many people now driving utes that probably really don't need a ute, you know. But if you tried to put them, sell them into a, a ute from, you know, a Ford Courier, they don't want it because it's not very good. They've become better cars as more people have sort of got into them. And that's what's made them a modern family car. And mm -hmm. people are buying them for non uh, rational reasons. You know, they're buying them for passionate reasons. And that's the problem with the Commodore ultimately was it was it became a car that wasn't uh, it was neither rational nor passionate, you know, particularly that ZB Commodore. It was just I, I got diehard Holden fans that yes. think Holden died when yes. the VF died. The ZB is not a Holden. It's it was dead then and there. It was ironic. Ironically, I think the, the you know ZB was a return to roots because the Commodore sort of started out as a modified yeah, that, insignia anyway, didn't it? But that, that it did, but it but it sort of you know it's sort of that sort of fundamental. That was what Holden thought. That's what Holden thought they could get away with. That was Holden uh -huh. Brandt messaging around it. I remember being with Holden at that time, and their PR executive sort of saying, "Oh yeah, it's it's actually a return to what it was," but it's like not really, you know. I it's think not, I think as well, there's something interesting there about how like Ford like had the right products at the right time, just as manufacturing was ending. You know, they didn't they didn't burn consumers with sort of a cynical SUV. They had the territory, which was homegrown. It was actually good as opposed to the Captiva, which was neither of those things. And then you've got, you know, the uh, uh, Ranger coming at the right time and being updated at the right time and really carrying a lot of sort of favor across to the new and the cool. Um, and, you know, we can look at Ford now and say, okay, well, maybe people aren't buying Ford's SUVs as much, um, but the Ranger is, you know, on fire. So uh, I think, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty for these brands. I think, you know, it. we can dissect it all we want, but it sort of happened how it happened. I think Holden products were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's ultimately what killed the brand more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the thing, everyone needs to remember with this is like I say that, you know, how, how do you, was there a way in which the car industry can be saved? You know, it really bothered me seeing politicians, you know, when Holden was shuttered, you know, getting out there and Bobcat had dressed up like the grim reaper and acting like it was this great tragedy. It's like, what are you, what are you doing, mate? Why are you, why are you crying over something? You're at the funeral crying over it, but you're the, you know, you were there when they pulled the plug, you know, and the, on the life support machine, you can't, you, the government had its opportunity to save it and to then turn around and act like it was this, you know, great tragedy that you, you just couldn't believe. It's like, well, you had opportunities. Now the reality is though, you know, to, to save it, you probably need something like the U S has, you know, like a chicken tax and, and, mm. you know, make force, force Ford and, and GM and Toyota to make Hiluxes and Rangers here and, and just tax the living daylights out of everything else. But that's not really what consumers want. You know, can taxpayers and voters would have, uh, you know, revolted at that right at the ballot box. So there was there was no real way to save it because if you look at, you know, as Byron sort of lays out in, in his story, and if you just look at the raw numbers of it, when you get back to the actual data, you know, the, the, the large car segment, by the time when they started designing the VE Commodore versus actually getting it into showrooms, the large car segment nearly halved. You know, you're going from selling, you look at Hilux now, they're, they're selling around four, you know, between 40 and 50,000 Hilux a year as the best selling vehicle in the country. Commodores and Falcons, they were selling like nearly 100,000, more than 100,000 some year. So, you know, best case, even if it had remained the best selling car, you're still doing half the volume. So it's how, how do you justify the, the cost of it?
Exactly. Look, as Byron puts in his story, 95,000 VT Commodores were sold in 1998. Now, 10 years later, 2008, the VE barely cracked 51,000 units. Yep. And then by 2018, you were doing 9,000, 9,000 cars sold compared to even 24,000 the, the year before. So it was, they were dropping like flies. Yeah. Um, and like, that's that's exactly uh, what you said, Stephen, and, 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 and Tom, you mentioned this as well. The people that are following, following the, the final holder rolling off the line, people that would have ordinarily bought, ordinarily bought one as a family car went straight into SUVs, and people that wanted you know, the, the performance enthusiast style uh, Commodore Falcon buyer, Went and got a Ranger Raptor, or you know, uh, you know, or a Mustang, or Navarro, a, Navarro yeah. Warrior, or something like that. I've got a tweet. I've got a little comment here that's coming. Um, it's from Owen Spark, and he says, "I have owned a string of Holdens, racking up a couple of million kilometers, driving work Commodores, traveling over eighty thousand kilometers a year. I currently own a five point seven, five point seven liter WH Statesman Land Yacht." So reliable, he says. And then look, Owen's Owen's popped in again. He's he's on. He's he's, he's getting getting stuck into it. Owen Owen Spark. He says, Z, "Here we go. Look, at this is like he's a panel member." Um, he said, "The ZB stuffed up with the name Commodore. I yeah. hired one in Tasmania and did two thousand kilometers on Targa roads." I'm, I'm asking, wondering if he entered Targa at the same time or <laughs> yep. I, I went out to pull it apart, but came away with respect for the ZB. Went. Handled and steered well, plenty of kit. So there you go. Owen Spark chiming in with he's obviously a, a Holden man. Uh, if you're if you're a Ford Ford guy or girl, um, yeah, let us know as well. Um, but yeah, look, and as as, as Byron mentions in his stories, uh, in his story, the next sort of part of of the the moving of car culture in the car landscape in Australia is the arrival of electric vehicles. Um, and I guess in some ways we're going to have that same sense of loss as combustion engine cars go the way of the dodo. Um, you know, there, there, there might be a time in, in 40 years where we've got final combustion car rolling down the line. I don't know what it would be. It might be a Suzuki Vitara. It might be a, you know, I don't know. It could be I think, I think it, it might not even take that long, to be honest. I mean, you see how mm. fast... We were just talking about just then how fast mm. large sedans and locally grown cars fell from favour. It was like literally in a four or five year period, the sales just nosedived. And I think we're seeing now the rise of electric cars finally. Like people last couple of years, based on the numbers, might have been justified in saying, oh, it won't happen for 50 years. You know, uh, you know, um, combustion is going to stick around for a long time. But now electric cars, uh, year to date, uh, almost 3% of the Australian market, which is more than double where they were a year ago. And like some factor more than they were two years ago. So, you know, electric cars are coming. They're coming fast. And I think... Combustion, as we know it, in uh, particularly in a developed country like ours, will be over faster than people expect. Yeah, you know, definitely. Uh, I, I, well, I don't know. It's definitely. I think. I think. Just let's be controversial here. I think. You know, I'm actually working on a piece. I'm sure it'll be on carsguide.com. Are you, are you working on it right now? As we not as right we, now. I'm, okay, I'm single. Right. I'm single tasking. 
you've got my 100% attention, Richard. Um, I, like, you know, you talk to Ford, you know, it's, certainly there are markets like the US and, and China and certain European markets that are pushing very quickly towards uh, electrification. But if you look here, what are we buying? More than anything, we'll get mm. back to it. It's Hiluxes, Rangers, you know, I, you know, I think they, you know, there is a, you know, we are, we may be a developed country in the overall sense of things, but in terms of electric vehicle adoption, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely increasing hundred percent agree with what Tom said. It is increasing, but I think, you know, 3% is still a long way to go before we, we have sort of that overwhelming, uh, you know, volume of electric cars and we get rid of uh, combustion cars because at the end of the day, you know, you know, cars are getting more expensive, right? As there's more safety in them. If you, if car companies, you know, now, like we see something like a Yaris, 20 Yaris that used to be a $15,000 car is now a $25,000 car. Oh. What happens, you know, if they make an electric Yaris, all of a sudden it's a 35, $40,000 car. At some point, people just, are just not going to be able to afford them. Right. And yeah. they'll stop buying them. Car companies need to make products that people can afford to buy. Well, so it's a really good point because, how the heck does somebody who's just got their peas um, and wants a cheap new car, uh, like, you know, you could have got a Barino in, 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 in times gone by, how, how can they afford a cheap, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, even an affordable small electric car costs a fortune? You know, it's yeah, absolutely even, yeah. ridiculous. Even secondhand ones, like, you know, early mm. Nissan Leaf is like crazy expensive on the secondhand market. And I think you know, right now there's a bit of a overcorrection because we've seen fuel prices jump so much this year. So, you know, there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, I'm only doing 30Ks a week, so I can afford to have, you know, a first-gen Nissan Leaf with 100,000Ks on it. But... Um, over time, it'll be interesting to see, yeah, will will those prices come down for secondhand electric cars? You know, uh, it's so interesting, I think. Um, I've got a yeah. quick question for you. Then I've got a quick question for you, Steve. Uh, Tom, first of all, this is off topic altogether, but I know that everyone's going to be wanting to know. In your experience and in your mind, a secondhand electric car, who is going to buy one of those, given the fact that there's no way you'd buy a secondhand well-used mobile phone? because the battery is going to be stuffed. Um, surely the same goes for a secondhand electric car. Like surely the battery is going to be worn out and, you know, won't charge as, you know, much or the range would be depleted. I think, think for some of the early ones that can, that can sort of ring true, um, I was watching actually a Top Gear episode uh, not that long ago where they were challenged to go out and buy uh, an electric car each, like a secondhand electric car, and they had some like really low budget. And one guy bought uh, like a first gen Nissan Leaf, and it was something like seven or eight years old, and the the battery had already lost like a significant amount of range. So I yeah. think it's genuinely a problem, particularly mm. for the older ones. But what we do know is the newer gen batteries that are coming out now, like these multi cell systems with smarter computers in them about how they charge and distribute that energy, um, are much better in their warranted for much longer so battery manufacturers will generally warrant the battery to have a certain amount of capacity left at mm. the end of whatever it might be seven or eight years and yeah. generally that number is 80 70 to 80 percent of its potential range um yeah but i think it'll be interesting to see how they age because we just don't know it's one of those things that we don't know like we, we've seen a handful of first gen electric cars uh yeah okay the motors might age well compared to a combustion engine that is poorly serviced sure um but 
you know, how will the batteries last? Uh, will they still feel that good? Because they're also really heavy. So they're going to wear out their suspension faster and stuff like that. So I, I think there's some really interesting things that we're going to see in the next couple of years <laughs> with the electric cars that are being sold now. Definitely. Look, and look, if you're watching this now or listening to this now and you've you've bought a secondhand electric car, let us know about your experiences. I know that there's, a, you know, a huge market for reconditioning electric batteries as well. That's going, that's going to get even bigger. Now, Steve, I've got a, a final question for you, mm-hmm. and that is back on the um, final Holden uh, last car, last Australian car ever made. How's this going to affect motorsport? I know that next year we're moving to Gen 3 in supercars and we're going to have the Camaro ZL1 up against the new Gen Mustang. Are Holden fans going to adopt the Chevy? I mean, they've been putting Chevy badges on the front of their, you know, SS Commodores yeah. for years now. Um, are they going to, are they going to, people going to turn up to Bathurst next year? This See, is, this, this is the, the $65,000 question, right? I mean, the, you know, from a supercars point of view, replacing the you know <laughs> it was a bit of a tricky one for them because you know they're trying to push a more production relevant brand and yet like concept yeah. with these new gen 3 regulations at the same time replacing one completely production irrelevant car a v8 rear wheel drive zb <laughs> commodore yes. with a, a car that is not available in australia and is almost certainly going to be axed by chevrolet in, in the us within the next couple of years i don't think there's there's been no talk of it oh. being replaced at least at least as a uh as what it is a, a combustion engine vehicle you know there's, yeah. there's, there are rumors that it will be electric so i mean that's that's the real question for supercars that, that again they're they, in some ways, are, are in the same position that Holden and Ford found themselves in. Yeah. You know, in the last twenty years, you know, the the industry is changing. How can you evolve to keep up with the industry without alienating your your core audience and but evolve with them and attract new a new audience? Because that's really what happened with the Commodore at the end of the day, right? People grew up and you kind of you bought a Commodore because that's the car you always wanted. And then, you know, maybe your dad drove one and then you really wanted one or you saw it win at Bathurst with Brocky and you wanted to win, you know, you wanted to drive it yourself. And so, but then that changed. And so is that going to change with, with you know, exactly. younger fans, you know? Look, so- I've got the solution. I've got the solution. Um, you know, Supercars, I know the chairman uh, of, of Supercars listens to the Cars Guide podcast. Yeah, really. I really think, religiously. forget, cancel, cancel Gen 3, cancel the Mustang, cancel the you know, the Camaro, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. V8 super SUVs. Now, mm. like, it, it's it's the, we'll go back to the <laughs> race on Sunday, buy on Monday thing. We'll what? have Santa Fe's out there. We'll have, you know, look, the, the, see, the see, I, fantastic. I can't entirely tell if you're joking or not, but I have, I have argued that they should probably, they could, you could almost, you could, you could almost race the Utes. If you raced like a, yeah. you know, in America they have yes. NASCAR truck racing, which is they're they're effectively a NASCAR, but just with a truck body. And so, well, we did, we did we have, do that. We, we did have Utes for a while. We we had yeah. Commodore and Falcon Utes, and we that also had the, the Toyo the Toyo Super. I don't know why I gave them a plug, but the yeah. the Super Utes as well. Um, I'm not even sure that was the correct sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's getting the, free tires. The, the Shimano, um, the Shimano Super Utes. The, the, um, the crap, yeah. Um, yeah. But we've they, got a, yeah, we've got a comment. We've got another comment. This one's from um, Melissa Wade, and she says, "Putting a Chevy badge on a Holden is disgusting." And Melissa, <laughs> I am totally with you. I Where's think some Australian seriously, pride? like the 
these the people that were putting Chevy badges on their Holdens, they were asking for you know the brand to be killed off. Yeah, I hope you're happy. Uh, also, what has it got to do with it? It's not actually. Uh, yeah, I understand it's part of General Motors. Wouldn't you just put? Why couldn't you would have put a GMC badge on it or yes. a Cadillac badge? Why not put a Cadillac on there and then it looks fancy? Well, um, not, not when you know this is an Australian built car. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know the I understand LS one is, is is a Chevy engine. Yes. But, but it's not. But that's a the color particularly. It's a particularly galling when you talk about yes. uh, VE and a VF, mm. which were the first fully Australian developed cars. But before that, you yes. could put an Opal badge on them. I guess that would yes. arguably make more sense. Yes, I didn't mind people who put Opal badges on their Vectras. At least they were kind of acknowledging what that's they right. were. <laughs> yeah, guys, thank you. Look. Everybody, if you want to read that story in more detail, it's on the Cars Guide website, Byron Matthew Darkus, one of the, one of the best analysis of, of, of what happened and, and, and where we're going, I think I've, I've ever read. Uh, check it out. We're going to head over to the news desk now. now. It's a, we're going to head over to the news desk now. It's called This Week in News. Okay. Oh, my goodness. There's been so much news this week. I've been working on the news desk, apart from other things, going to crawl across launches, everything like that. News, news, news. But Stephen Otley. Um, yes. Sorry, was I supposed to have moved desks because I've stayed at my same desk? <laughs> yeah, no, we all moved. Okay. We all moved desks. Okay. You, we all you, moved you don't home. have a news desk at home no. as well as your normal yeah, desk? Yeah, I only have a normal I still have a spare desk, actually. Maybe I'll make that the news desk. Okay. I'm Good actually thinking, uh, speaking to JC and actually having like a weather desk as well for the Cars Guides podcast. We'll do the that weather. Just, would just say, in Australia, it would just say raining. It's raining all raining. over. Steve. Sorry, um, yes. Fantastic story. Uh, you you wrote about the possibility of an electric version of Australia's Ranger Ute coming out. Give us the scoop on this. Right. So, I mean, look, spoiler alert, it's not coming next week. Uh, obviously, Tom, the- do you want to talk about your... Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I was very fortunate recently to go to Detroit and talk to some of these high, very high-ranking Ford officials who are able to sort of, I guess, talk without fear of getting, you know, called into their boss's office um the reality is yeah th- i think there's there is a there's definitely a sense that uh electrification is in the in the future obviously we know you know they haven't come out and actually said it but i think we all know that there's a plug-in hybrid version of the ranger that's why the new run has a 50 millimeter extended wheelbase that's effectively to fit mm. the motor and some batteries um but uh they talk about future-proofing that platform. You know, that platform, you know, in theory will stick around into the early part of next decade. Um, I think, you know, if you read the story, the crux of it is, you know, the most likely outcome is that we'll see something around, I I would think, the the second half of this decade when we have, um, you know, midlife update. It'll probably get, um, possibly get an electric version then. But, uh, you know, obviously that's not locked in. But, um, you know, they have said that the Thai facility, the plant that builds the car will become an electric vehicle hub. Um, you know, they do want to focus uh, in the in the next few years in terms of ramping up production of F-150 Lightning, Mustang Mach-E, E-Transit, and then this fourth model that they'll share with um, the uh, Volkswagen ID4. Um, they, want, they want to build, they want to build their electric range slowly but they certainly, you know, Ranger is a vehicle that is sold in 180 plus markets. There's mm. huge potential for it uh, mm. to do an electric version, 
you know, and and the great news is they've said if it's going to if they're going to build an electric version of anything, it's not just going to be plonk out the the petrol engine, just stuff in an electric couple of electric motors and away you go. It's going mm. to be quote insanely great. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get something pretty special. I love it. I love it when uh, you know, car car executives say words like insanely great. Yeah. Um, you know that they're excited. It's good that they're excited as well. Yeah. Um, do we have anything to fear or be concerned about in terms of towing capacity and range? I recently watched a, um, a review of the F one fifty Lightning. Uh, it was an American um, review. And, not my uh, not my review. That's on it was, company. Your one as well. Your one's very good. Uh, but this this was this was a this was a video uh, looking at uh, comparing a regular combustion engine um, uh, pickup. It was you know large size pickups compared with an F one fifty Lightning. F one fifty Lightning when it was towing uh, lost its range really really dramatically fast. Um, mm. Do do Aussies have anything to worry about in terms of an electric Ute not being able to go as far? Like you hook up the you know the boat or you know the caravan or the camper trailer or something like that, and you realise you get halfway to your destination, you run out of juice. Is that going to happen? Mm. Well, I, I Scott, think, um... <laughs> I think that depends because uh, there's a few sort of mitigating factors there. I, like I hear this complaint a lot about oh you know what if mm. I want to tow it's going to half my range or or you know what have you uh, if for example, if you know you've got a version of an electric Ranger that has more than four hundred kilometers range on the freeway, so you know probably more like five hundred kilometers range mm. uh, around town, w- which would be the quoted number that they give it. But anyway, um, assume you've got two hundred k's of range before you need to charge up while you're towing at the capacity. Uh, you need to stop revive survive anyway and if we're talking about not getting one of these utes for five or six years still uh then you know the charging network at least along the east coast of australia will probably support that so hey i need to stop every two hours and i need to charge my ute up and that'll be it yeah where will will battery technology be by that point too you know as some point earlier this technology is is advancing at a rapid rate Mm. um so yeah, who who knows? I mean, it's it's way too early to talk about how much range you'll get out of a yeah. ranger. Yeah. Um, but Whoa. you know, like it's going to get confusing if you wanted to do we'll, a range, we'll range review of the ranger range. Ranger um, range, ranger range, range, range review. Range, yeah. range, ranger anxiety is that? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, look. Obviously, it's an issue. But again, like we said before, how many like have tens of thousands of people started buying boats and caravans in Australia in the last? 10 years 15 years like a lot of people are buying these it's how many people are buying a, a, a ranger raptor and regularly doing high speed off-road driving which is ultimately what it's designed for yes so we, you know we, yes you're right like, um but it's in the same way that you know we were buying these um you know ssv commodores and things like that which had amazing you know capability but it was about the look and about the what yeah. it said to people yeah, how it sounded Yes, talking of sounds, uh, Tom White, we're going to jump over to your news story now. You're, you've been delving into the, the mysterious world of the Ineos Grenadier. Now, for those of people who are not familiar with it, and if you're not, that's completely understandable. It's, I don't even know if it exists, but it, it does apparently. Um, it's a kind of Land Rover Defender, modern version, but an old-style truck, if you know what I mean. Tom, you have got some more information about when it's arriving. Uh, tell us what you know. 
This is a pretty anticipated car because, you know, as we know, uh, in the recent years, at least, you know, Australians are pretty mad about 4x4s uh, mm. and there's even going to be a ute version of this for those, you know, mm. uh, who haven't been uh, following it that closely. But they sent out a communique, Ineos that is, sent out a communique earlier this week that was saying uh, the first customer deliveries of the Grenadier uh, will start in December of this year. Um, but it was a global release. And so we got in contact with them and, and said, hey, you know, Australia tends to be a bit of, bit of a different market. You know, uh, there's obviously longer shipping times. Sometimes we end up at the end of the list. And we asked them, you know, when would first customer deliveries uh, be for Australia? And uh, to save you the effort of reading the story, uh, it's a little bit later than everywhere else in the world, uh, mm. but they will be here. They hope before the end of the year, they said at least demonstrator vehicles will be here uh, before the end of the year and customer deliveries were more likely to kind of be in the 2023 sphere of things. So you can read the story for the direct quotes and stuff, but I think this is a really interesting uh, little trucks to this one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, interestingly, you know, it's got that kind of Defender, old school Defender style body, but it's powered by modern BMW straight six engines. Um, and- so is, is it true? Is it true that the idea for this came up when two blokes in a pub were lamenting the fact that the Land Rover Defender was Defender was going to go all new and modern looking, and what they wanted was basically a 1970s or 80s Defender that looked like it was bulletproof; it could go anywhere without any of that fancy posh stuff. Is that true? That's basic. That's basically the story. It just yeah. so happens that the two guys that were discussing it also happen to be very, very wealthy and yes. uh, very high-ranking people in Ineos, which is, uh, if if you're not familiar with it, outside the four x four is a is a massive uh, global chemical company. So yeah. Yeah. a lot well, of money to back it. Um, and it's actually named after the pub that they came up with the idea in. So that's kind of cool. The too. Grenadier. The Grenadier. The Grenadier. Right? Well, I'm pretty sure that the original the original intention was to just attempt to buy the rights to build continue building the defender as a continuation yeah, yeah. the the yeah, original right. concept was to buy the tooling yeah and then that didn't end up happening and in fact there was a lawsuit about the look of the car because it you know <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, very, it, very it's a similar. defender it looks yeah. like it looks like a defender like yeah. completely yeah. completely yeah. all right i'm gonna jump over to my sorry Stephen, what were you gonna say well it's just it's a funny old story isn't it he's the richest man in the in the uk yeah. he was actually a big brexit supporter Yes. And now it was going to build the car in Wales and then decided yep. promptly to uh, not build the car in Wales. And he himself, I believe, has actually moved, taken residency in Monaco so he doesn't uh, have to pay tax in the UK. So not necessarily the great, not quite as like the great feat of British Britishness that no, maybe I, the Land Rover is, you know. It's I know. Like, I'm getting, I'm getting my, my spidey senses tingling with, with this brand because as Elon Musk is finding out now, and he tweeted you know, a little while back about how, running uh, a space company is actually easier than running a car manufacturing <laughs> company. He said it's, it's a lot harder than anything else I do. And the fact that these guys have just come up with the idea in a pub and think, yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I, lo- I love yeah. it. It's so romantic, right? But far out, if you bought one, do you reckon you're going to be you know, supported by servicing for and, and, and parts for the next 10 years? Like, what's going to happen? But anyway. I, I reckon one interesting thing about this, though, is they've kind of, they've done things right. They've played it inside mm. the industry. The reason yeah. that, they, the claimed reason that they've chosen the factory in France that they've chosen to build the car in is because it was a ready-to-go modernised uh, Daimler or Mercedes yeah. factory. Um, and so they've done everything right. So, and, you know, it's not been a 
riding roller coaster of tents outside doing final assembly like it was for <laughs> yeah. Tesla. So I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, look, I have more faith in this one. Yeah. It's certainly, like you say, it's certainly got the financial support you need to run a car company. Yes, that's right. Now, talking of financial support, uh, my news story, which I'm going to talk about, is a story that I wrote as well. Um, Paris Motor Show, uh, great motor show, important motor show for Europe, uh, but it was stolen by Great Wall Motors, GWM, who made an announcement at the show that they would be releasing, releasing into the wild, 50 new EV models by 2025. So in two and a half years, they're just going to be releasing 50 of them. Um, I spoke to uh, Havel and GWM's uh, representative in Australia. Um, they can't give us any clarity in terms of what's coming here, but even he said that there's going to be seven or eight new electric vehicles uh, coming from uh, GWM by the end of next year. Um, look, we're looking at things like uh, the ones called, they've got great names, they've got great names, the Next Oracat, that's its whole name, Next Oracat. It looks like a cross between a Porsche and a catfish. Um, it's it's a really Probably. goofy it's a it's a goofy looking car. But this is this is what's happening. Um, we've got these Chinese brands who aren't sort of bound by traditional sort of sense of what a car should look like, and especially being electric vehicles, they've just gone wild. So and especially <laughs> the naming strategies as well. We've got the Coffee One and Coffee Two. These are a, a, a large SUV and a medium SUV. Um, coffee One is large. Coffee Two is, is slightly smaller. Maybe it's in make a, make a piccolo or a macchiato. Yeah, I believe um, it has a lot of. It, it's a, it's a milkier car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So just, just has a, a little bit of chocolate on top. Yeah, a little bit, little sprinkles, and then a little design on the on the roof. <laughs> That's right. All right, we're going to zoom over now to talk about the cars in our garage. Okay, here we go. Now, we, we one of the best parts of our job, in fact, the only part of our job is that we've got to drive cars all the time. Fantastic. Yes. Um, but they can vary. So, Mr. Otley, talk us through mm, what you've been mm. in this week. Well, I guess pertinent to our main topic today, the idea that people are buying SUVs and they still like performance cars like the old SS Commodore, I have been driving the Volkswagen Tiguan R. So a performance SUV for, you know, uh, you know, take the whole family to school in record time. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's a, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, it's a big golf R. It's got the same two liter four cylinder turbo engine, 235 kilowatts, 420 newton meters, seven speed dual clutch. And it's got the all new fancy pants, uh, torque splitter, equipped all-wheel yeah. drive system. Um, it does cost $69,990 plus on road costs. So you probably, Oof. yeah, probably, I mean, I would think you'd be looking at spending, you're not going to get any change out of 80 grand by the time you get one in traffic. So mm. it's not cheap. Uh, certainly it's a fun car, uh, quick, you know, spacious, uh, looks stylish, um, does all those things you expect of an R Volkswagen. Um, you know, obviously not quite as nimble and agile as a Golf, but yeah, it holds its own. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's an impressive thing. Yeah, look, and this is what we were talking about, um, I think, in another podcast, talking about how we're losing hot hatches and yes. we're, we're moving into, into SUVs. And I guess this is, uh, you can you can have your hot hatch and your SUV well, at the same time here. 
this is the thing. Your purists mm. can go, oh, it's not a hot hatch. It's a wagon. Yeah. It's not as good, but it's, but from Volkswagen's point of view, if it's what people want to buy, mm-hmm. that's what mm. you should sell them. You know, it's like, that, so, exactly. They've, yeah, they're catering to the audience. Talking of audiences, Tom White, now you've been in something fairly posh, it's fairly electric. Uh, Range Rover Evoque Fev, is that right? Are we call um, it a Fev. So its full name is the Land Rover Range Rover Evoque. Yes. yes. R Dynamic P three hundred E. Yeah. So this is uh, <laughs> the plug-in hybrid version of the Range Rover Evoque, and Range Rover is kind of on this moving even more upmarket bent than uh, it has been previously. Like they're sort of getting rid of the cheaper versions of cars in their range and they're um, sort of adding these even higher end versions that are hybridized and come with all the packs as standard and and, and this sort of stuff. So, and this is one of them. So uh, it's an Evoque. Uh, if you, you'd be familiar with the, um, you know, small SUV kind of trope, but this was one of the earlier examples of it. I think it's quite design led. It's quite a good looking car. Um, and it's very luxurious, this one on the inside, because it does come with a lot of packs as standard. So it's got a plush interior. It's really quiet. It's lovely to drive. And in terms of that plug-in hybrid drivetrain, it mixes an 80 uh, kilowatt uh, electric motor, and it's on the rear axle, which is interesting, um, with a little uh, 1.5 litre three-cylinder turbo petrol engine in the front. Uh, The combined power output is uh, a lot. Like it has 540 uh, newton meters of torque at peak and 227 kilowatts of power. So it's hugely powerful. It'll do 62 kilometers of fully electric driving from a 15 kilowatt hour battery. But the coolest thing about this car, with a plug-in hybrid, I think one of the issues is they tend to be kind of inconvenient because you have to sort of charge them up and then they don't travel very far and then you charge them up again and they charge really slowly but this car charges really fast because it's one of the few plug-in hybrids that has a dc charger so you can just plug it in at a fast charger and then you know 20 minutes later you've got the full sort of 60k range left and then you can drive again and so i had it charged my whole week pretty much and i got a fuel consumption number of one liter to 100 kilometers so i think that's pretty good really yeah absolutely and it smells amazing inside it does. Um, it's, it's. I had a. I, I went, to went, down, went down to the car park on Wednesday and, and I had a sniff. And it is. There's something to do with the materials. It smell. It just smells posh. Um, <laughs> unlike, unlike my car, um, it's a Ford Escape ST line, and it's been living with us for four months now. Uh, we said goodbye to it on Monday, um, and I tell you what, it does not smell like the. Uh, evoke that you have there it smells like my family which is disgusting um it, involved, it needed a good it needed a good wash but I, i've got to say look the st line is the sporty version of the ford escape i've driven the fev as well it's nowhere near as good as the evoke fev um you know the range is not as great this is the all-wheel drive petrol version of the escape I think it's actually one of the best driving mid-size suvs around um having driven RAV4s and Outlanders and you know, Tucson's and and um, Sportages. It's it's just such a great car to drive. I've got used to the dial, which is the, the shifting dial now. I now fling it around like, you know, I don't even have to look at it anymore. That's for the, the shifting. Um, the steering's really good. has been great. It's a bit small on the inside. Even for my little family, I've just got two kids and one wife, just one wife. And... Um, 
it's on the on the smaller side. In fact, our regular car is a, a Skoda Rapid um, Spaceback, and the boot is actually larger than 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 the boot actually hmm. in the in the Escape. It's a it's a weird size Escape, isn't it? Yeah, it's not quite what we can you know traditionally considered to be a, a mid-size suv like it's nowhere near as big as a rav4 for example yeah it's a, i find it i've actually just recently driven the escape fev as well not to have a second car in the garage but um i don't know it sort of strikes me as a little bit i don't know just it's maybe a little plain it's a little shy and retiring yeah. for that segment you know like the rav4 is a much more sort of they've deliberately yeah. made it a bit more in your face it's a little bit more bold the the cx5 is a bit more of design led the tucson the sportage yeah. are more design led whereas the 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 escape i think has a tendency to fly under the radar because it it's a fine car but yeah. it's it sort of just seems to get lost in the background it plays it safe and then on top of that it's more expensive and that's i think yeah. the that's, biggest problem that's the killer i mean it's about four thousand five thousand dollars more than its equivalent rev4 and four thousand five thousand dollars to an average aussie that's that's the mortgage paid um yeah. so that that makes a difference i like the look of it i think it looks like an aston martin dbx um yeah yeah look at them side by side um there's a lot of similarities there um and i also think that the quality feels really good too i all the materials feel nice Mm. to touch they're all soft you know you get into a rav4 and there's a lot of hard plastic and and in this st line escape it's just it's it's quite it's quite fancy so yeah no i've enjoyed it we had to say goodbye to it i did give it a good wash okay i vacuumed it myself and um yeah, it's going to be sad to see that go. And look, it's going to be sad to see all of you go, guys go as well. It's it's time now to leave. Um, thank you so much to all our listeners and our viewers. And thank you, Steve. And thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. And well done. Well done to our production guru, Mr. Brett Sullivan. He's a generous man. He lent me his hooded wearable blanket for my Corolla Cross video. You can see it. Um, you can see it in, in, in the video, which is just, uh, that's like, watch this one first and then watch that one. Um, it's a friend's Udi. Yeah, friends, you know, I'll be there for you, Udi. It's very warm. So thank you, Brett. Thank you very much for, for lending me that. Now, if you want to jump into the conversation, Cars Guide is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn. We're everywhere. Traditionalists can email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. And listeners, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Five stars would be great. Six Six would even be better. Um, And good news for listeners, we're on track with Apple Podcasts. Uh, Missing episodes are posted up now. And viewers, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to the Cars Guide channel and so you can stay on top of all our latest content. Now, before we go, JC always tells a joke, and I I hate jokes. I I prefer just things that are funny that aren't supposed to be. Um, But anyway, here we go. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Moo. Moo. You're also because I have children, so therefore yeah, I have yeah. also heard that joke many times. It's, Do you think a, people were playing along at home with that one? Like you said, knock knock, and they were like, ooh, who's there? Yeah, for sure. I would be. Yeah. Anyway, that's it.